you know, you spend billions in health and safety. It all goes to safety. It all goes to keeping people physically safe at work. Why don't you also want to keep people mentally and emotionally safe at work? Welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, hosted by myself, Chris Hall, the founder of the Burnt Chef Project. This week's guest is Jeff McDonald. He's best known as a global advocate, campaigner, and consultant who is passionate about addressing the stigma of mental ill health in workplaces. He joins us to talk about his own experiences working with this particular subject with across many different businesses across the world, as well as his own personal experiences of mental ill health and why he does what he does now. It's an amazing chat, a really inspiring conversation. So I really hope you enjoy it. Get strapped in and uh, see you on the other side. Lamb Western are your partner in potatoes. We're a leading global frozen potato manufacturing business with a wealth of experience in offering a portfolio of high-end and quality products on a consistent basis. We supply the pub, casual dining, QSR sectors. We believe in well-being through potatoes and we are very proud to support the Burnt Chef Project. Here to offer our support and help for those that need it and any solutions that you need for you and your business. So this week I am joined by Jeff McDonald, who is a keynote speaker, business transformation advisor, and a mental health campaigner. Uh, he's also been on two TED Talks now. Yeah. Jeff, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. I've seen them both. Um, so you know, and you know, you really have to know your stuff if you're on TED Talks. If anyone hasn't checked those out yet, please do go over to YouTube and have a look. Um, but Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful initiative that you've uh, that you've launched over the last uh, couple of months. So wonderful to join you. Thank you, thank you very much. And I, mean, I know we spoke about a year ago, and it was it was through that conversation that sort of inspired me to to do what we're doing now. Um, and hopefully, you know, in ten years' time, this this will be a, a radically different uh, organisation altogether. But um, I mean, for those that perhaps aren't familiar with yourself, uh, could you just explain a little bit about your journey and sort of what led you to tackling the stigma of mental health as your main career path? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm a, I'm a typical South African, all right? So, in fact, I'm talking to you from South Africa today uh, while you're in, in the UK. And uh, I decided I come back on holiday once a year and the coronavirus, the South African variant hit and it meant uh, people in the UK didn't really want any South Africans coming back. So I'm kind of stuck here, but enjoying, enjoying, the, enjoying the summer. Um, Grew up in South Africa, had a 25-year career working for Unilever, uh, global head of HR for all of our marketing, communications, sustainability around the Unilever world. Uh, 2008, I, I'll never forget the date, uh, 25th of Jan, 2008. Uh, the 26th of Jan was going to be my eldest daughter's 13th birthday. Uh, and the night before her 13th birthday. And you can imagine, you know, turning 13, that's a big thing in, in our lives. It's one of the milestones. Uh, she was so excited about the fact that she was going to turn 13. You know, midnight the night before, I, I get woken up with a massive panic attack. Um, never experienced a panic attack in all my life. Thinking I'm having a heart attack. Midday the next day, I'm in a doctor's rooms and I'm diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. Um, me, depression, I mean, couldn't believe it. I mean, my understanding of the word depression, I mean, I, I'm an Arsenal supporter. Well, try and be an Arsenal supporter. 
see, see, see what that's like. You know, you get two thirds into every season, wheels fall off, and I turn to my wife and say, "I'm depressed," and she says, "Why?" And I say, "Because of this bloody Arsenal football club." Um, that's my understanding of the word depression. And and here I yeah. am on my daughter's thirteenth birthday, diagnosed with anxiety fueled depression. There's only one thing that saves my life during my recovery. And by the way, I had to take three months off work to recover. But the only thing that saved my life in my darkest, darkest moments was knowing how much I was loved by so many people. And, and, and that feeling of love, you know, that there's so many songs that have been sung about the power of love. And, and just feeling loved in my darkest moments just kept me going. And the only reason I felt loved was because I was very open about my illness. So I, was, I refused to be burdened by the stigma. I wasn't going to go and tell people that I had glandular fever or bilharzia because I'd swum in some dam in South Africa, had to take three months off work. I, I was very open about the fact that I had been diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. Um, I got better. Uh, it took me three months to get better. As I say, I had to take three months off work. Uh, a combination of things from feeling loved, a sense of hope, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, medication, slowly getting back onto my bicycle, doing some exercise. All of it contributed to my recovery. But the two most important things that drove my recovery was that feeling of being loved and having a sense of hope that I could get through this. I then go back into Unilever. Uh, 2010, I have a bit of a relapse. Nothing as bad as 2008. And then in October of 2012, I lose a very good friend to suicide. And, you know, he was the most wonderful human being. Uh, Carl Jung once said, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. I mean, and that was him. You know, he was just, he brought so much energy, passion, love to the world, and now he was gone. And, you know, I lay in bed the night he died, and I thought, what's the difference? Here I am, sort of four years after my crucible moment in life, learning every single day how to maintain my recovery as somebody who's mm -hmm. susceptible to anxiety fueled depression, putting my health as the number one priority in my life, and maintaining my recovery. And he's gone. And I thought, what's the difference? And the only difference was I'd been able to talk about my struggles. I'd been able to talk about my diagnosis. He couldn't. He was an alpha male South African. I mean, there's just no ways he could have this conversation. No ways. And instead, he died by suicide. And, you know, that night I thought that is not fair in the 21st century. It's not fair. You know, stigma has just killed my friend. Stigma. Stigma. Had he had a physical illness? What would he have done? He would have gone and asked for some, some help. But because he was struggling mentally and emotionally, he didn't think he could do that. And, you know, as you and I chat today, I'm not saying for one minute that had he been able to have a conversation with somebody, he would definitely be alive today. I'm not saying that for one minute. But what I am saying is had he been able to just ask for some help, had he been able to just go and have just one conversation, think about a grain of sand. There's a tiny, tiny chance that he'd still be alive today. Tiny chance. And you know what? That's worth fighting for every single day of my life. And I suppose that, therefore, was the catalyst. That was the catalyst that, that really catalyzed me into going out into the world and trying to create not only workplaces, but friendship groups, family groups, where we feel that it's actually okay to have a conversation, to ask for some help if we're struggling both mentally or emotionally. I mean, it uh, resonates with me massively, and that's one of the reasons why I've, I've started the Burnt Chef project in the same way. But why, why do you think of it that the stigma is so strong? 
Well, look, I think there are a couple of things at play. Um, I think the first thing is I think there's something around male stereotyping. Uh, you know, the male stereotype is, uh, you know, strong, uh, take the heat in the kitchen, uh, don't talk about emotions and feelings. That's not what men do. Um, so I think there's a, I think there's a whole thing for men in particular around a stereotype that exists and society kind of has expected men to behave in a particular way. Um, I think that there is a complete lack of education around mental health, emotional health. And because we have been so limited in being educated about, and whether you want to call it mental ill health or emotional ill health, but because we, we are, there's so little education and understanding, I think we fill the vacuum then with, with, you know, with, with, with stigma, with um, people who might struggle with a mental ill health condition. We fill that vacuum with, oh, they're weak. They can't take the heat in the kitchen. You know, they can't take pressure. Uh, they're, not, they're not capable of doing the job. It becomes a career limiting move, you know. So I think there's a whole this this lack of education. I think there's this the stereotyping that exists, uh, which fuels the stigma. Uh, I think there's a there's a whole piece around shame and and feeling shameful um, that goes with 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 stigma and 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 what might drive some of the stigma. Uh, I think there's. There's in certain professions, there's more stigma than others because there's these kind of, again, these stereotypes or expectations that guess what, a, do a doctor should never suffer from mental ill health, or a mental health nurse should never suffer, or a priest or a vicar should never. Why? Why would they suffer from this sort of thing? So, so yeah, I think it's a combination of a lack of education, real fear and shame, and 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 you know stereotypes that exist out there, stereotypes that exist out there. It's amazing, isn't it? That it's it's still so strong in such a modern day culture, whereby you know freedom of speech, expression, you know equal rights, it's all rallied for. Yet there's this still underlying current of the fact that we can't talk about something that biologically is natural to every single person on this entire planet, irrespective of your race or sex. Um, it's it just it gets me, and I and I think that from our positions when we're talking so openly about our own mental health experiences you become almost attached from that that initial stigma as well don't you you've squashed it so long ago that you, you know you don't see any problem with it and that's the that's the ultimate goal but you forget where we were i mean where where i went into um i had sort of a personality crisis that i had to go get cognitive behavioral therapy for and i did it without telling my boss without even telling yeah. my wife who i'd ask a divorce for yeah. completely out of the blue and i went and to this cognitive behavioral therapist, I went off the grid, you know, didn't tell anyone, snuck off for an hour, wouldn't tell. And and I felt that shame so strong because I was damaged and there wasn't something right, right with me. Mm. But in respect that actually thousands and certainly within hospitality. So we did a study back in May of last year that said that almost I think it was 83 percent of hospitality professionals had experienced at least one 
mental illness within their career. And you think to yourself, and you look around, and no one's talking about this because of stigma. And if people opened yeah. up about it and started discussing it, it might help someone else, and potentially it could save a life. Um, exactly. Actually, exactly. I've got a got a quote here from you saying, um, "Every story we tell is like sending out a lifeboat, and those suffering in silence cling on and realize that they're not alone." Which I thought, yeah, that's amazing. That's Absolutely, exactly the aim of it. Absolutely, and you know, Chris. I mean, the other thing that I would say is that um you know also i think our our whole understanding of the term health you know when you hear the word health we just we think about we just think about physical health and and we don't also think about emotional health and mental health and spiritual health or a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives you know and and all everything we've been educated about when we were at school you know we got physical health education we never got mental health education. I often challenge organizations as well and companies and say, you know, you spend billions in health and safety, billions and billions around the world, keeping people physically safe. I mean, you know, you spend billions in health and safety. It all goes to safety. It all goes to keeping people physically safe at work. Why don't you also want to keep people mentally and emotionally safe at work? It's not as if when mm. I walk in the door, I leave my emotions and my cognitive ability at the door when I walk in. So why don't you also want to keep me emotionally and mentally safe? Why, why do you just want to keep me physically safe? And it's, you know, and so I think it's this, this understanding and this term health. And that's why sometimes maybe well-being is a more holistic term that we should refer to because it talks about, you know, our health beyond just physical health, mental, emotional, having that sense of purpose and, meaning in our lives yeah massively so and i think those that are listening to this podcast i mean we we focus specifically on hospitality and you know front of house staff waiters waitresses they always say to me like how do i deal with my emotions how do i blunt my emotions so that when i'm in front of customers the stuff that's happened at home or my worries and concerns don't show through how do i deal with that or if i am going through something how do i process that before and after and then yet you've got back of house which is you know, quite a macho environment, very stoic, very, you know, there's it's hot, there's a lot of stresses on your physical body. And again, they're dealing with a completely different type of stressor, which is then impacting and leading to increased rates of burnout and depression and anxiety as well. So hospitality has sort of got this, I mean, overall, the, the synergy between the two is that a lot of people look at individuals that work with in hospitality is it's a stopgap for them they're not here for long as a result they're just numbers and we don't need yeah. to look at their intrinsic value and look at what what motivates them and what how we can keep them happy and safe yeah. I mean, where do you begin there which one of these do you you know which one of these three things in terms of stigma do you tackle or how do you end up you know engaging with the subject of i think it's psychological safety is it yeah well you know, Chris, I, I think that, come back to my point, which is saying that, you know, we have over the years spent billions in health and safety, but it's all gone to safety. And I'm sure that, I'm sure that resonates in the hospitality industry as well. You know, if you work in the hospitality industry, I'm telling you, they will make sure that you are kept physically safe at work. I tell you what I don't think we've done a very good job at is making this link between employee health or overall well-being 
energy and performance. Because if you think about it, probably the most important driver of your performance at work in the hospitality industry, and I can tell you, I experienced it when I go into hospitality, right? Those hotels that I love to stay in was when I went to the reception, I got to the reception, and there was an energized, happy employee, right? And, and you know, and, and I'd have somebody, you know, who would direct me in an energized, happy kind of way to a toilet or a waitress or a waiter who would engage with me and we would have a conversation. Now, and, and those energized people, I mean, those are your, those are your, those are your best performers. Those are the people who build the relationships with the customer and the client and why the client wants to come back to your hotel or to your restaurant or whatever the case might be. Now, where do we get our energy from? We get our energy from our health, from our well-being. I mean, when I was very ill with anxiety-fueled depression, you know, because I had all the skills, I had all the knowledge, I had all the behaviors to do my job. I had all the experience, 20 years in Unilever, senior HR job, all right? I had all those things. You know what I didn't have? I didn't have my health. And so I couldn't perform. And so then my challenge is, so if, if the energy and the health of your people is the most important driver of individual, and I could probably stretch it to team. Look at Liverpool Football Club. I know they're struggling right now. But, I mean, where did those guys come from over the last couple of years? Come on, man. But, he, you know, cop arrives, and what does he do? He's instilling passion and energy in this place. Jeepers, they yeah, just yeah. win everything. Eh? Energy, passion is what he instills. So if energy and passion and health is such an enabler to performance at an individual and at least at the team level, why then is the health of your people not a strategic priority in your business? Why is it not seen to be a critical enabler to enhancing the performance of your business, of your restaurant, or whatever the case might be? You know, and, and, we, and I don't think we've done a good enough job in helping executives, senior leaders to, to, to make that link and then helping them think through what would they do if it were to be a strategic priority? What would we have to execute in order to elevate the health of our people to being a critical driver of performance in our organization? Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's all the, these owners are looking for or CEOs. I mean, they, at the end of the day, all they're interested in is, is their entity performing. Well, yeah, I mean, for for anyone that's owned a business or owns a business currently, it, it's it's a it's a child, it's a living, breathing thing that you you know you want to try and keep going and keep um, in its best stage of health, whether that's financial health or operational health, whatever it might be. But you know, you plow all of your energy and time into it. I, th I think that I mean, I'm, from the conversations I've had with some of the you know the, the top industry leaders and within hospitality you know and i hope to have have many more conversations but the key thing i think is that everyone's trying to do their bit or what they know and it comes back to your original point about you know education and yes. awareness you know we're playing we're playing catch up like massive catch up and most of us are learning sort of late into our 30s 40s 50s even 60s about this subject matter yes. when it goes against the grain of everything that we've ever been taught or learned through our own experiences hey exactly Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, I often say my mother taught me <laughs> dental hygiene. Well, guess what? My teeth haven't fallen out. 
Jeepers, I wish somebody had taught me some mental hygiene once upon a time. You know, maybe I maybe I wouldn't have had that crucible moment in my life. Maybe I would have known what were the symptoms to look out for. Maybe I would have known that I was moving from stress to becoming distressed and I needed to take the foot off the accelerator and, and just take some time out to just recover and to, you know, employ some practices that would keep my, my mind and my emotions healthy. But no, nobody ever taught me that stuff. So you're right. It's all about catch up. Massively say. And just to going back to your own experience of mental ill health, like how looking, knowing what you know now, when you look back at that, what were some of the early warning signs that perhaps you could have changed the direction or trajectory? Or are you sort of in the camp that, yeah. you know, you were always susceptible to mental illness and as a result, it was going to happen at some stage or another? No, look, I, I mean, I was, I was never in the camp of, I, I was always susceptible. I think I've learned a bit of that as a result. And I, I mean, I'm happy to share why, why I think some people are more susceptible than others. But, you know, and again, you know, I wish I had, I had been more mindful of some of these symptoms. And by the way, you know, what, what, the symptoms that I experienced are not necessarily the symptoms that everybody else who's listening to this podcast is going to experience. But let me just show you my own lived experience. And, and what were some of those symptoms? So the first one was, when I reflect back now, irritability. That, that should have been a really big warning sign, that my levels of irritability were going through the roof. You know, things that normally wouldn't irritate me just would irritate me. I mean, that should have been a, a red flag that, you know what, you're stressed and maybe you're moving to becoming distressed. So that would be the, you know, so irritability and just finding that you just get irritated over things that normally wouldn't irritate you. Short fuse, mm. you know, feeling more angry than what you normally would feel um, about stuff. The second was sleep and just com very, very disrupted sleep patterns, just not being able to sleep. Uh, like I normally would, you know, waking up, uh, not being able to get back to sleep and lying there, worrying about stuff, feeling anxious about stuff. I think the third one it was, was a kind of a, a loss of interest in the things that I normally loved to do, you know, like to go for a mountain bike ride on a Saturday morning with my mates and just not feeling up to doing that. Um, and so, you know, that's what I look forward to, but just not looking forward to doing the things that I normally would look forward to doing, I think was mm -hmm. another, another warning sign. A loss of weight in my case, because, you know, I would wake up feeling quite stressed and anxious and then not want to eat breakfast, not want to eat lunch. And so, you know, the weight begins to fall off and I'm starting to lose weight. Um, finding it difficult to read read stuff that was negative, that was sad, that would would trigger me, you know, like reading an article about, a, you know, a child dying. I mean, you know, it's my worst fear in life. I'm sure any parent, it's their worst fear to bury their child. But, but reading an article in a newspaper and just finding that that would have an enormous impact on me and not being able to read that sort of stuff. You know, th those were some of the things for me, which I think were early warning signs that I wish I had picked up on. And and I often say, Chris, you know, that I think that, you know, the rule of thumb on all of this is, you know, we all know, we all know ourselves. 
we all know our normal behavior. We all know the people who work with us over time. We get to know what their normal behavior is. And mm. if you notice a shift in your normal behavior, and that shift is persistent over a period of time, three, four, five weeks, there are some warning signs. There are some warning signs there. You know, because we all have bad days. You know, we'll all have a bad week. You know, we're all, we all live on a spectrum when it comes to our mental and emotional health. Um, but I think if that normal behavior is just not normal and it's persisted, persisted, it's with you for four or five weeks, I think, I think it's time for a conversation. It's time to go and have a chat to a doctor or to just speak to somebody about where you're at and how you're feeling. I think that's a great, that's a great, yeah, that's a great sort of summary of that. Um, and I think that many people out there, to be honest with you, I've been in many kitchens whereby you're, you're perfectly describing some of the, uh, some of the chefs that, that I've known. Um, and that's just their personality or it gets you thinking, doesn't it? Perhaps it's not their personality. Yeah. Perhaps it's, it's, yeah. you know, something much deeper than that. Um, you know, we talk about bullying in the workplace. You know, I think sometimes those bullies are bullying because they are really struggling with their own mental and emotional health at the time. And the smallest little things are irritating them and they are raging and they then become, you know, they come across as bullies. It's because they are they're struggling with their own with their own well-being. Yeah, massively so. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. So for those who do want to, you know, who are listening to this now perhaps and are acknowledging that perhaps what they are feeling in terms of their emotions or the, um, you know, ruminations going around their head and they're thinking about things more than usual, what would be the first step into being able to either A, engage with someone who may be unaware that this is going on and, and ask for help or vice versa for, for that individual to yeah. to spot these signs and then engage on that on that level? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I've got, I've got three thoughts on, the, on that. I mean, the first one I'd like to just say when it comes to asking for help, I love what Charles Mackesy says about asking for help. It's not giving up. It's refusing to give up. I mean, imagine if that could be our mindset when it comes to asking for help, that it's refusing to give up. So asking for help is not giving up. It's actually refusing to give up, number one. I think for those who are listening and who might be feeling some of this stuff, it's as simple as making an appointment and going and seeing a doctor. Just go and see a doctor. Just go and have a conversation with a doctor. Uh, or you might want to go onto the MIND website and look at all the resources there and just read some of the stuff that is there to try and get a sense of what might be going on. But the simplest thing that we could all do is pick up the phone and make an appointment to see a doctor and talk to your doctor about how you're feeling. I think in terms of spotting the symptoms of others, you know, I don't know. I think we're putting huge onerous, a huge onerous task on line managers and leaders at this time to spot the symptoms, um, to have the supportive conversation that is necessary to signpost people and to offer love and hope and support, right? That's all you need to do. Um, but you know what I would like is for instead of, instead of expecting line managers and leaders to, to spot all these symptoms, I would like 
line managers and leaders to be sharing with their teams and saying, you know what? Let me tell you what my relationship to mental ill health is. It's a compassionate one. It's a supportive one. And you know what? Let me tell you that I also have my days when I struggle with my anxiety or feelings of desperation and sadness. And so you know what? I want you to know that I'm here to love you, to support you, and to guide you. If ever you are struggling with a mental or an emotional struggle, just like I would if you were physically ill. And I want, I want us to get leaders and line managers to be saying that to people so that, guess what? Chris then knows I'm working for somebody who I know I can just put my hand up and I can go and have that conversation. And you know what he or she is going to do for me? She's going to signpost me. She's going to show me the, the respect, the love. She's going to listen to me. She's going to listen to me or he's going to listen to me. So, so yes, I think, yeah, of course, line managers and leaders need to be aware of some of these symptoms. I think they need to accept that they're not psychiatrists, they're not therapists. But, but you know what, I often, I often think if your daughter or your son had one of these conditions, you would kind of know what to do. You would, you, you, when I say know what to do, you would instinctively want to love them, support them, and guide them. Why wouldn't you want to do the same for an employee? I mean, what happens when you walk into the door? I mean, do you, do you suddenly become somebody different from this loving father or loving mother or parent or friend? Just, just behave in the same human, loving, and compassionate way to the people who work with you and for you. And guess what? It's those people that make you successful one day. <laughs> Yeah, massively so. And it's um it reminds me of Rennie Brown's uh talk that she did on vulnerability. Yeah. I think that was that was a TED talk as well. And that and that's powerful. Like for anyone that thinks that vulnerability is a sign of weakness, it's not. It's the biggest sign of strength that you could possibly give because what you're actually saying to someone is, Yeah, I'm not I'm human, I'm not perfect. Yeah, um exactly. but it's okay. Yeah. Huge. And it's okay if you're not okay. And I'm there to support you and to help you. And, you know, more and more I've been trying to encourage leaders in, into this whole or line managers to be more overt about their own self-care, their own ability to be compassionate to themselves and show self-compassion. You know, because, I mean, I think it was an air steward who once taught me how powerful self-compassion is. You know, when you get a safety briefing, you know, and she says, well, or he says, if the oxygen mask, if this, this plane goes down, oxygen mask falls and your daughter's sitting next to you, who do you put the oxygen mask on first? You put it on your daughter first. No, you don't. You put it on yourself first, and then you tend to your daughter. And I think if, if leaders and line managers can be more compassionate to themselves, can be putting that oxygen mask on themselves first, and role modeling some of that with their people, it sends such a message. It sends such a message that, you know what, it's okay to care for your health because I care for my health. And the other thing that I often say, Chris, is that if you, know, if you can't care for your own mental health, if you can't care for your own emotional health, if you can't care for your own well-being, you won't care for anybody else's. You won't. You won't. And so how do we get, how do we, how do we get leaders in workplaces today to, to, to really, to really, display self-compassion so that they can also then be 
compassionate to the people they lead. You know, there's some research that's just been done around COVID. I think it was Gallup who did the research saying, what are followers looking for from leaders at this time during the pandemic? And I hope it would continue beyond the pandemic. And followers are looking for four things from their leaders. The first thing they want their leaders to do is to instill trust. The second thing is they want their their leaders to try and instill a bit of stability. They want their leaders to instill a little bit of hope. And finally, they just want their leaders to show compassion. I think that's needed more than ever after after the year that we've had, hey? Yeah. I mean, I was chatting to a um, psychologist uh, over in Denmark who has just, well, this was a year ago now, this was ages ago, but she had released a campaign called UOK, hmm. which was, it was a resilience training module. I think it's, it's free to access to anyone, irrespective of you, where you are. And she was saying that the the last time we saw uh, isolation cases like we have done previously was things in like the french riots and you know certain events that have happened and she was talking about how after these events the studies have shown that the long-term mental health has been impacted of individuals in almost like a, a second a second wave if you like i mean we know that we're in a global epidemic at the moment with regards to mental health and we're fighting the the pandemic of covid but you know, according to to the studies that she did, and the reason why she brought this this training out was that six months or seven months or eight months afterwards, there'll be a rising wave wave of anxiety and, and emotions that people aren't used to processing once they're back to their normal life. And like, how how do we as a as a as a, a very busy and a very um, highly pressured industry look to educating people? I mean, how, what, sort, what can the Burnt Chef Project do in order to be able to get that message out to people and to, to try and get them to just educate well, themselves and provide that platform? Yeah. yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I think that um, I often say that, um, again, I come back to my point around health and safety. Think about, you know, we are going to come through this pandemic. And once we're through this pandemic, we will start going back to work. and it might not be the same as it has been in the past. It will be a blended approach of a bit of working from home and a bit of, but people want to go get back to work. They want to go back to work. And what are we doing in workplaces is we're making sure that everybody's physically safe from getting COVID. We're putting screens up. We're putting social distancing up. We're having, we're putting sanitizers all over the place. Well, what are we doing to also make sure that as people come back to work, they feel emotionally and mentally safe? What are we doing to make sure that when people come back to work, there's no stigma in that workplace and that people feel that they can, if they need to, have a conversation with their boss, they can go and have that conversation. And I think the work you are doing, the mere fact that we are having this conversation, that you're spreading this word out there, is what you're doing is you're getting this conversation going. You're just catalyzing this conversation. And, you know, Chris, I often say that if we can just have the conversation, if all you are doing through your podcasts is you catalyzing this conversation, you're getting people to think about this, and they're going back into their workplaces and they're starting this conversation, anything, anything becomes possible. Anything becomes possible. I think it was, I don't know, John F. Kennedy. He said to somebody, come on, 
sit and let's have a meeting. How about putting a man on the moon and bringing him back safely one day? They started that conversation. Well, guess what? It happened. It happened because they were able to have the conversation. But if we can't have the conversation, nothing is possible. And that's why it's only a pleasure to contribute to your podcast because what you're doing, the work you're doing, is you're catalyzing these conversations. And in catalyzing these conversations, anything, anything then becomes possible. And, you know, I often say, just at an individual level, what we can all do is we can do three things. We can all reflect on our own relationship to mental ill health. We can all reflect on that. Take time out to just reflect on what is our relationship. Is it one of intolerance or is it one of compassion and empathy? And for those who have got, and there are people who listen to this podcast thinking, oh, jeepers, what a snowflake McDonald is, you know. I mean, for those individuals, all I ask you to do is just go and be curious. Please just go and be curious about mental health. Go and read about it. Go and talk to people who've suffered in the past. But please just go and be curious. That's the first thing. So that's, we can all do that. We, we can just reflect on our relationship. If it's not where we think it should be, go and be curious. And the more curious you become, the more educated you become, the more aware, the more understanding, the more empathy. The second thing we can all do is what you are doing. We can just have a conversation. Start a conversation with our team, with our family, with our friends. And the third thing we can all do, when we're ready, we can tell our stories. And the more stories we tell, as you said earlier, we send these lifeboats out into the ocean. And those that are struggling in silence. And you know, you and I are talking now. And as we talk, there are not a million people. There are billions and billions of people all over the world who are suffering in silence. You know, when they hear our stories and they see that lifeboat, they cling on to it. And they realize they're not alone and they're just normal. And the more we can share our stories and tell some of our stories, the more we normalize the stuff. Well said. Well said. We have just, I mean, at the time of this recording goes live, so it's the 9th of March now. Um, this will probably be out in April. We will have launched our the Burnt Chef Academy, which is a online app. Uh, it's available on a website, but it's also available on I, iTunes and also Google. But on there, we're providing free mental health awareness training, as well as resilience training and a, a load of other modules plus also access to things like your TED Talks and, um, you know, Simon Sinek's TED Talk about empathy and all these other, you know, these useful resources so that anyone Wonderful. who is curious can do so free of charge. Go dive straight into that. Um, Wonderful. And we've all, Wonderful. You know, so hopefully that will also help, help, help business owners, help individuals understand. And we have also just launched the, um, the Burnt Chef uh, support service as well, which is a free text-based service in, in association with Shout. Um, and you might be interested to know, actually, uh, in our first 30 days of launching, we had over 45 uses of that, predominantly wow. men, yeah. where they, was, they previously said that 70% of people who use the service were, for, were women. So, um, yeah, just just trying Great to do job. what we can do. Great. But um, I appreciate your time, short. So I have one last question for you before we go. Uh, and that is, if you were to give some advice to an 18-year-old version of yourself, what would you what would you say based on what you know now? I apply a lovely little well, what I would 
what I would say, the, the first, the bit of advice I would give is make your health the number one priority in your life. And when I talk about your health, not just your physical health, your emotional health, your mental health, and have that sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Elevate your well-being to the most important priority in your life. And if you can do that, my advice then is spend 60 minutes every single day of your life dedicated to maintaining your health and your well-being. And I have a lovely little acronym that I want to leave people with. I dedicate 60 minutes every single day to a little acronym called CAN DO. The C stands for connect. Do you know connection to friends, to family, to nature is so important for our emotional health? I will spend five minutes, 10 minutes every single day connecting. Just a bit of connection. The A stands for be active. I will have every single day 30 minutes dedicated to being active, whether that's a bike ride, a run, a walk, some yoga, but just 30 minutes every single day being active. The N in can do stands for just try and be nice to someone. Just be nice to people. You know what it does to your sense of meaning and purpose when you're just nice to somebody? The D is all about discovering and being curious and learning. It's so good for our mental health. Five minutes, 10 minutes, listen to a podcast, read a book that you're interested in. Just learn something new. Be curious. So good for your mental health. And probably the most important for me, and this is for me, is learning to observe, learning to recover, taking a five-minute recovery break every two hours where I just go and stand in the daylight, look out the window, and just observe and be grateful for what I've got. So that would be my advice. Elevate your health to being the most important priority in your life and dedicate 60 minutes every single day to maintaining the most valuable asset that you have, and that is your wellness. And you know what I say to them? They're 1,440 minutes in a day. Do the calculation. 24 multiplied by 24 hours multiplied by, there are 1,440 minutes. Don't tell me you haven't got 60 for yourself. Doesn't have to be all at once, does it? And exactly, exactly. And by the way, you might, you might start with just two elements of can do, and you're going to do 15 minutes, but just start it. I think that's a perfect, perfect point to end on, Jeff. That was amazing. Thank you ever so much. Only a pleasure. And thank you for having me. And if I can support your project in any way going forward, you know where to find me. Thank yeah. you. And I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Cheers now. Cheers, mate. Bye. Cheers. Bye. So that was another episode of the Burn Chef Journal. Really hope you that you enjoyed this week's episode. As normal, we'll be back with you next week. But if in the meantime you wanted to head over to our website and support The Burnt Chef Project, you can do so by visiting www.theburntchefproject.com where you'll find a whole host of resources and merchandise and the profits of sales go directly back into funding our ongoing work. In addition, if you or anyone that you know might be having difficulties with their mental health at this time, please do use the Burnt Chef support service. Just text Burnt Chef to 85258 and we'll have a trained advisor text you back within five minutes. Thank you and we'll see you again soon.